The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Hey y'all, this is Gordon Runyon, setting the record straight. We're here to do the third and probably the last of the little, uh, I mean them to be like workshops. I don't mean these to be lectures or anything, but we wanna ask together questions about what it means to preach as a reconstructionist. The first time we were together, that was kind of the question is there is there anything about reconstructionist preaching that should be observable or definable what sets a reconstructionist apart from a run-of-the-mill reformed expository sort of preacher and specifically i'm thinking not just because you hear a guy preach post-millennialism or theonomy, but that there's something, there's something else. I'm asking if a reconstructionist preaches on the incarnation of Christ, would that message differ from a more generically reformed preacher? And my answer is, is I think it must. I think it has to. And uh, so we spoke together in that first, that first time that we were here doing this. We, I mentioned my own belief that Reconstructionist preaching is kingdom preaching. It's it's warfare preaching. It's preaching that has as one of its goals the public tearing down of idols, meaning false gods and false ways of thinking about the world and about what we're supposed to do in it. And I want to reiterate something from that first episode as well, is that I, I'm not here holding myself up as a model and saying, just download my sermons and you'll see what I'm talking about. And I, heaven help you if you're trying to use me as a model for your preaching. I'm just a guy that's trying to improve and trying to get better. I've never had anybody in, uh, in about 20 years of regular preaching, I've never had anybody come to me and say, that was the best sermon I ever heard. And uh, so I would not lift myself up as a model for preaching or anything but i i just want to ask questions that will hopefully push us in the direction of preaching in a more pointed way or the metaphor of the preached word as the sword of the spirit i i want to make sure we're sharpening that sword and then in the second episode the second session i gave you a couple of questions to ask of the text once you've decided what the problem is in the text or the in some places it's called the fallen creature focus i kind of refer to it as the curse consequence what is 
what is that consequence of the fall that is the problem in the text that we're looking at specifically we're kind of using for convenience sake we're using psalm 133 and using that as our example text now psalm 133 is just three verses extolling the virtues of uh, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity and there isn't a an explicit sin listed there there's nothing explicitly wrong about anything that's being said there in fact it's all very positive but i think without much imagination we can see that implied in what it's saying about how good it is to dwell in unity there's an implied opposite in there isn't it that being in dis in disunity is something directly opposite the blessings that are being listed in that psalm. It's no longer a place of fruitfulness and growth, and it's no longer a place of God's anointing when we suffer disunity, disharmony, strife between man and man. And so that would be the curse consequence that I'm talking about. So in your text, you find the curse consequence and generally speaking, then, a Reformed way of preaching will have you look for the gospel remedy or the redemptive focus of the text. How does Scripture deal with the curse consequence? And that's pretty common in preaching instruction that you'll find that you should do that. I suggested asking a couple of more questions that will sharpen the sword in terms of what we're aiming at specifically ask for example if the if the example text is the one we're working on if disunity disharmony strife between men and man if that is the curse consequence then the questions that i'm thinking we should ask are how does the world view that curse consequence because some of the things that the Bible holds out as being curses, the world doesn't see it that way. The world actually calls them blessings. But here I think the world would say that disunity and disharmony are not ideal. And then the other question is, if, if the world sees it as a bad thing, then what are the world's answers for it? And now we get into issues like... Uh, forced unity through like organizations or institutional means uh, I think of even ancient Rome they'd allow you to believe whatever they wanted you to believe as long as everybody was unified in offering a pinch of incense to the genius of the empire and so that was a way of providing an overarching sort of religious unity and so you could just think on and on about that. How does the world try to deal with disharmony or lack of unity? Well, it can descend into nationalism and tribalism, and you can have governments decide that this is dangerous, and so you'll have government crackdowns. And so that's kind of a rich field to begin to talk about and, and preach against. 
this is what the world says we should do about our disharmony or our lack of unity, but let me tell you about what God has for us. Of course, then you'd have to move forward and bring in the New Testament and the fact that Jesus is the basis of our unity. He's the one that breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. He grants to us the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So that would be certainly a way to go there. Now, today in the last session here, I want to talk briefly about things like introductions and conclusions and applications. Hopefully we'll get through all this. So dealing specifically with introductions, I want to alert you to a book that I have found helpful. It's by a man named Paul Scott Wilson, and it's called The Four Pages of the Sermon. It's pretty pretty common, pretty well known as a preaching text. The four pages of the sermon, pages are kind of metaphorical. You're really talking about four sections, four units within the sermon. The first page, uh, I think Wilson talks about even like using four literal sheets of paper. And on the first sheet of paper, the first page of the sermon, he would have you write down the problem in the text or what we were just talking about, the curse consequence. So, for instance, in Psalm 133, that would be disharmony, lack of unity. And then in the second page of the sermon, it's suggested that we find parallels for that in the world around us. David's talking about unity clearly in answer to the problem of disunity. Um, Where do we see that problem in the world? And and he might come up with a couple of examples, maybe even recent examples, watching the news and things of that nature. Shouldn't be too hard to find. Then in the third page of the sermon, the suggestion is that you find the solution that's present in the text or the solution that's pointed to at least. And in Psalm 133, it would be that God-given unity, the sort of unity that God blesses. Then in verse, or in uh, the fourth page of the sermon, the strategy is to think about how that solution could, should, would be applied in the world, specifically to the problem that you mentioned before in the second page, problem in the world. Now you talk about how the gospel or how the text in particular here, how would that apply in the world? Okay, so that's the pattern that he has there, and that's the suggested arrangement for it. And my suggestion to you as you're coming up with your introduction, I believe you have very little time to engage people and and tell them why they should care what you're talking about. And so at the very least, I think you should, you should switch the first and second page, meaning that the thing you should lead out with is the problems in the world. Examples, in this case, examples of disunity and lack of harmony and strife. 
then once you've got those examples, you can say something by way of transition, like uh, this is no new thing and God knows how to deal with this and turn with me to this text here. And so you can begin to show how whatever problem it is we face, there's nothing new under the sun. It's, it's addressed in the scripture. And you can go through the solution that's then given in the scripture and then come back to what you began with, the problem in the world. Come back and show how the scripture then points to modern solutions or old solutions set in the present world. In fact, these four divisions that I've given you, problem and solution in both the world and in the biblical text, those four divisions are really present throughout another book, a more recent book. Uh, I, I don't know if I recommend it or not, but it's the book is called Patterns of Preaching, Ronald J. Allen, editor. And what he lists 34, he's distinguishing 34 different structures or patterns for sermon outlines and how to preach. And when you're going through those, I think what I noticed right away is that there's really only a handful, maybe five different types of sermons that he talks about. And some of them, maybe there's one or two others that are genuinely unique, but I don't I don't know how in the world I would ever preach those things. They're kind of outlandish. But generally, the rest of the 34 structures really kind of boil down to just playing with those four categories and those four pages of the sermon and putting them in different orders. Like I just suggested, start with the problem in the world, which is more immediate and, and more likely to grab some attention. But another thing I've done is I've started with the I've started with the solution before the solution in the text, the solution in the world, and then gone back and explained how and why these things are the solution. My point to you is that if you have discerned what your enemy is in terms of false gospel, false gods, false ways of thinking, if you've discerned what that enemy is, write it in the beginning. Name it and go after it. Uh, from my years of studying fiction and having grand designs on becoming a novelist, uh, it became clear right away that it's drama. It's, uh, it's conflict. Conflict creates drama, and drama is what holds attention. And without conflict, nobody cares. You can't have any real drama. And so my solution to that as a preacher is to insert the drama right at the beginning by showing where the conflict is. Name the idol you intend to go after and, and go after it. Now, by way of application, the one thing that I want to say is I would, I recommend you get away 
from the kind of Puritan pattern of making application a specific section of your sermon. You know, they would have the introduction and the argument and the reasons to the cause and and eventually a five-page section on on application. I'd suggest you don't do that. I think it's much better to insert application as soon as you can, sprinkle it in. You know, when you come across several different points in a text, apply each one as you go. Uh, suggest application. And that's because I want to save application for something. I want to save the ending for something other than application. I don't want the conclusion to just be, okay, now that we know these things, what should we do about it? I think the conclusion can be much more dramatic than that. So sprinkle the application in and be intentional about that. And also be intentional about widening the application to issues outside the individual believer or his family or on rare occasions you'll hear people apply things to the church. Generally, run-of-the-mill reformed expository preaching churches, you're going to find applications that are very heavy on personal and pietistic applications. Uh, maybe once in a while they'll dive into what would it look like if you, if you started living this way in your family life. I'm saying that we need to find ways to ask ourselves as preachers, and I know it's hard, I know it's hard, especially if you haven't been thinking this way, but we have to find ways to expand our suggestions about application and make them much wider. As Christian Reconstructionists, we're always going on about how all the world should apply to all of life. We highlight those passages, especially in the New Testament, which say that spiritual maturity has to do with being able to judge all things, that we are supposed to have our senses trained to discern both good and evil. And I think we do nobody any favors if we don't at least try to model that in our preaching and showing here's what the word says. What would it look like if we actually applied that, like in our, in our business? as employers or entrepreneurs or as or as salaried workers or whatever it is what if we applied this to the way we govern ourselves and i think really that that would be one of the answers to the question how should reconstructionist preaching differ from run-of-the-mill reform preaching i think application has got to be doesn't it strike you as just obvious that's got to be a place where you would you would hear a reconstructionist preach and say wow that guy applied the trinity to uh that guy applied the trinity to how we should <laughs> deal with immigrants or something like that and you know the run-of-the-mill guy ain't doing that if you are baffled about things like how should the incarnation of Christ affect the way that governments operate. Highly recommend you got to get it, and you got to get it, not just for the great theology that's in it, but for the 
actual preaching instruction that's in it is the Foundations of Social Order by R.J. Rushduni, where the whole point of what he's doing is he's showing how these doctrines that are contained in the creeds of Christendom, how those doctrines actually became the foundations of Western civilization. And if you don't know that, if you don't know how to get from doctrines like Trinity or Incarnation, if you don't know how to get from things like uh, the sending of the Holy Spirit or, or Jesus' intercession at the right hand of God, how do you get from there to talking about how government should function? Uh, foundations of social order is a good starting place there, and I know it's hard. It is hard, but... God didn't call you to an easy task. If he's called you to be a preacher, he hasn't called you to an easy task. Okay, and as I mentioned before, in, for instance, in Psalm 133, when we talk, start talking about what the wider application can be, of course it depends on us being able to discern the world's counterfeits and solutions, especially, for instance... I think easily of things like the Roman Catholic uh, institutional uh, top-down sort of enforcement of unity. There's great unity among Roman Catholics, but it's all it's all administrative, it's all institutional, and it's all enforced by coercion, frankly. <laughs> What would it look like if we had real access to the unity of the brethren? Psalm 133. Think more about just how you feel with your friends or how it would look in your family. What would it look like in, in your state? <laughs> and I already mentioned, of course, that we should be free with your placement of the notes of application. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The last thing that I want to mention is your conclusion. And I've read a bunch of preaching books about structure and stuff and all the, all the suggestions they have for the conclusion. And you've heard it, I'm sure, that the sermon with the introduction and the body and the conclusion, it's all about telling them what you're, tell them what you're going to say, then say it, then tell them what you said. 
And so in a lot of preaching instruction, you're going to find the conclusion kind of being a way of summarizing and let's repeat some things that we think are important. You'll run into people saying that what is said last lasts. And so you want to be careful to say the right thing last. And I feel like I've never found that to be terribly effective. If we're reiterating the three points of our sermon or however many we have and that we're doing this three times during the course of the sermon because we believe this is going to help it be memorized, then why, why can't anybody tell us what we preached on by the time Friday rolls around or even by the time Tuesday rolls around? <laughs> Obviously, that repetition didn't stick it in their brain, did it? I've just become disillusioned with the ideas for how to conclude the sermon. I don't think they continue the war. I, I think they wind up being kind of anticlimactic. Which leads me then to a joy that I did stumble on, and I think Reconstructionists should make use of it. The joy I stumbled on is the African-American church's tradition of celebration. And I'm going to give you a definition I saw in a video. The video was put out by, and I'm not sure which seminary it was, but obviously a African-American dominated seminary, a preaching class. And the definition that was given for celebration, one of them was this. It's the joyful, ecstatic reinforcement of what you already taught the people. And you hear in there, joyful and ecstatic now, a lot of white folks who think about black churches and black preaching, and you think about the word celebration in connection, let's just be honest, what comes to your mind? Well, the kind of whooping and the, the, the hollering and the repetition and the answering, the pastor saying something and the congregation answering, and it, and it kind of reaches this tremendous crescendo, and people are, are really demonstrative and just having a blast, and and all that, and it may be very poetic, it may, very, may be very sing-song, uh, it may be very rhythmic. And so when we hear about maybe we should consider doing celebration in our sermons, I think it can be kind of intimidating for the old white guys. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, I know as a 53-year-old white guy in New Mexico, that if that's what celebration has to be, then that's, I'm not going to be able to do that. This is going to be out of my reach. I just can't do that kind of thing. And if I were to do it on your average Sunday, the old ladies in my congregation would not know what had happened to them. They would freak out. Not only would the pastor not know how to do it, the, the, you don't, you'd have to train a congregation to know how to do it. But I really appreciated what the instructor of this preaching class had to say about it. He said it's really not about those things that automatically come up in our minds. The stereotypes of the black churches and stuff like that. 
which are really, by the way, those are kind of minority things, minority within the black churches. A lot of black churches, probably most that you would find are not, are not whooping and hollering and, and all that. So even within that tradition, it's still kind of a minority uh, position. So what the instructor said was that it's not, about, it's not about what it looks like and it's not about what it sounds like. But celebration in the black, black preaching tradition has to do with actually rejoicing over the good news that you have just preached actively employing I know this is going to sound heretical actively employing and urging people to experience the emotions that are consistent with what you just told them is true now as reformed believers we have this idea we have a little bit of suspicion of emotions and, and uh, really appreciate what Dr. Jason Garwood has been addressing in that in that series that he's done on reconstructing the heart. But we kind of have this suspicion. I think it's very cultural. It's a very cultural suspicion of emotions that, you know, the, the holy man doesn't get emotional about these things. And when the truth is that our emotions were created by God for the service of God to the glory of God and for our help and our aid emotions are not evil but they do need to be trained just the same way that our minds need to be trained and so i know as reformed people we want to make sure that we're not being led by our emotions and yes and amen i agree with that we should not be led by our emotions we should be led by truth and that includes being led as emotional people our emotions should be led by the truth of God. And if you really believe that all of your sin has been forgiven and that you are safe from the punishment that you deserve and that God really has given you new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how can you talk about those things unemotionally? How can you do it? And how can you act like that's the holy thing to do? I admit that bugs me. I admit it makes me suspicious. I can't talk about what Jesus has done for me without, at times, you know, 30 years later from my conversion experience, I can't talk about those things without still having to fight back weeping. How do preachers get up and address these things in a dry and joyless and emotionless fashion? And how do congregations hear the word of the grace of God in the gospel and sit there emotionless? Well, I got to tell you, there's two answers that come to mind. Either one, they have not ever experienced the things that we're talking about. Or two, even if they have experienced that, They've been trained by church that you're not supposed to let it show. You're not supposed to do anything about it. You're not supposed to really feel it or let anybody know that you're feeling it. 
Celebration is the joyful, ecstatic reinforcement of what you already taught the people. I think the image that helps my mind try to wrap around this is the image of, of any number of sports movies, movies about sports, especially like basketball or football where there's a halftime and you can picture it in your mind where the the home team and the heroes of the story they're they're getting their butt kicked in the final game and they head into the locker room at halftime completely demoralized and their coach there who's been a good guy he's been with them the whole way and he's you know he's the hero he uh somehow he's able to stir them up somehow he's able to remind them where they came from He's able to remind them of all the work that they've done and all the practice and all the blood, sweat, and tears. And he's able to remind them of the shared struggle that they have had to reach this point. They're in the final game. And he's able to remind them of times when they came off victorious when they didn't think they could. And by the end of his halftime speech, this same group that's been getting their lunches handed to them in the first half man they grab up their gear and and they're shouting and they're ready to they're running back onto the court or back onto the field they believe they're going to win and when i think of celebration at the end of the at the end of the sermon that's kind of what comes to my mind don't just repeat the things that you've told them train them how that should feel <laughs> you've you've just told them that they've been saved from hell it's okay for them to feel good about that and in my own life and i think this is theologically absolutely spot on it isn't fear of punishment that motivates change and it isn't a sense of duty that motivates change in the Christian person. But what motivates real change, what causes real transformation, is when the Word of God sinks deeply within us and we begin to believe the message of the grace of God in our lives. And it's so counterintuitive because we've been taught to believe that if you remove the threat of punishment from somebody, well, they're just going to go off and do whatever they feel like and it'll be anarchy and antinomianism and, and whatever. And so you have, to, you have to kind of keep them under the thumb of something, hell or whatever. When the truth of the gospel is that when you understand that Jesus has done everything for you and that your, uh, your, end, your ending status will be seated with him at the right hand of God in glory, that that's, as far as God's concerned, that's already a done deal. When people really grab hold of that, you know what happens? They walk around transformed. It's true. You've taken away the threat of hell. And you know what? Now they, now they really are doing the things that they want to do, but they want to do different things. Transformation comes as a result of really receiving the good news of the grace of God in the gospel. And I'm concerned, my brothers, 
that as Christian Reconstructionists who know there's a war on and we want to fight the war and we want to win the war, I'm concerned that sometimes we just get a little bit morose and we get a little bit, uh, get a little bit beaten down and we get a little bit dark in our outlook on things. We call ourselves post-millennialists. That's supposed to mean optimism. We call ourselves Calvinists. That's supposed to mean that we're rejoicing in the grace of God. We call ourselves theonomists. That's supposed to mean that the light of the wisdom of God has been shed upon my path. <laughs> right? And then we walk out of church kind of numb. How can that be? So I really believe, I really believe that if you're going to preach a sermon that takes down the idols and urges people to get involved in the fight, the only way you're going to get them involved in the fight is by teaching them to follow sanctified emotional response to the grace of God in the word of God. That's it. You can beat on them about their duty. You can beat on them about their lack of activity and action and how come you're not a big activist and what are you doing? And you can beat on them all day long. You're not going to change them. What's going to change them is the message of Jesus Christ and the, the freedom, the training by you as their pastor, the freedom and the training to walk in how good that is and how comfortable that is and what a joy it is. And if they're not hearing that the word of God is joyful in church, where are they going to hear that? So all you white folks out there who have never thought about just including a time of celebration as the conclusion to your sermon, let me tell you, that's what I want to hear at the end of what you have to say. If you're telling me something true, I want to rejoice about that. I don't, I don't just want to be given a checklist of things to do. You know, you, you've told me what's true. You've taken down the idols. You've exposed them. You've pulled down the high places, every high thought and lofty imagination that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God. You've taken all that down in public in the middle of your sermon. You know what? It's time for Deborah and the women to grab their tambourines and let's dance and sing about the overthrow of the chariots of Egypt. When do we get to do that? <laughs> what have I just done? I've just celebrated. <laughs> I hope you get where I'm coming from at least. Do you really believe these things? How can you speak about them as if they're not true? I hope this is helpful. I sure would appreciate any feedback that you have about these things. God bless you. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.